All right, good morning. Go ahead, if you would, and turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 will be there momentarily. In fact, why don't we go ahead and we'll just have a word of prayer to start with. And uh, we're not going to read a, one long passage ahead of time this morning. There's several passages we'll go to and give you opportunity to read. But um, Hebrews chapter 8. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we uh, look into your word, we just uh, ask that you'd help us, help us to have proper understanding of it and uh, a much better appreciation for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, Hebrews 8 is where we are. The slides are not there yet, but I didn't have slides prepared last week. Uh, so I was able to get, I guess you'd say, caught up uh, on those. So let's just kind of review going through a few slides here. But uh, remember the three big words that outline the book of Hebrews, person, priesthood, and then principle uh, all these demonstrating the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. The fact that he is superior to, to anything, okay? Uh, but obviously there's a particular emphasis in the book of Hebrews that is comparing Christ to the Old Testament system, to Judaism, all right? Uh, obviously, but, but that superiority of his compares to anything as well. Um, but in chapter 7, is it, we see uh, really the, the starting in in earnest on presenting the superior priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, his work as a priest. And in chapter 7, uh, the emphasis is on the source of his priesthood, that he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In fact, that phrase occurs numerous times there. Uh, emphasizing that, and then there's four uh, points made basically in that chapter as to why that is superior, because it's a continual or an unchanged priesthood. Uh, his priesthood received ties from Abraham, which the purpose of that was demonstrating that Abraham was, was showing submission to him, and then, of course, Levi and Aaron, they came out of uh, from the loins of, as the Bible says, Abraham, and they were in Abraham when he did that. So therefore, again, just uh, showing the, the submission, the superiority of, of Melchizedek to Aaron. Then this priesthood, Christ's priesthood, which is after the order of Melchizedek, is perfect and brings salvation. The Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood, there was no perfection in it. There was never any completion to it. It was always... It was just a continual rehashing of the same things over and over and over and over again. I got to thinking about, it, you know, I wonder if it's possible to even add up how many times they offered this sacrifice, you know, from, from when they started in the book of Exodus till, uh, you know, AD 70. I mean, it's it just amazing if you start thinking about that, how much. I mean, which demonstrates, again, there... It was, just, it was just kind of a, a ritual. It was just something that they were doing. Now, it was right that they were doing it because God told them to do it, but there was no completion, and it never brought salvation. Okay, that's, and then the fourth point really is this priesthood or Christ's priesthood after the order of Melchizedek has a, a perfect and eternal priest. And the last number of verses there in chapter 7 emphasize that. Takes us into chapter 8, which we... 
uh, are saying has to do with the script of his priesthood or the new covenant. And the first six verses uh, present a sum, uh, really, and, and again, there's a couple different ways you could take that, but I lean toward more the idea that it's, it's presenting, okay, this is, the, this is all the capital that we have, the assets that we have in this priesthood uh, versus that other priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, right, in those verses. And it, it summarizes, in a way, his source, touches on that, his sanctuary, which is yet to be developed much. Uh, it will be in chapter 9. Uh, and then, of course, that sanctuary is a heavenly sanctuary. It's the true tabernacle. Its builder is God and not man. Those things are stated there in those verses. Uh, and then in verses 3 through 5, his sacrifice is, is something that's uh, superior and important there. That's going to be touched on more later in chapter 9 and 10. And then uh, it goes on to... I, gotta, I don't know why that happened. Oh, going through his sacrifice, but his script then, verse 6, introduces and then the rest of the chapter again focuses on that new covenant. All right, verse 6, let's pick up reading there. But now hath he, that's of course Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant established upon better promises, all right? So it's a better covenant, and it's established on better promises, and this is going to be in comparison to what this chapter is referring to as an old covenant, or the old covenant, all right? We'll talk more about that here momentarily, uh, but this thought then is expanded in the next number of verses. Okay, I guess this script. Here we go, all right. Verse 6 tells us that he's obtained a more excellent ministry, all right? And the idea, literally, it's an idea. He has an outstanding ministry. It's, it's, it's a word that means it's over and beyond. It's more excellent than what went before it, all right? He's the mediator, which, as you're familiar, that word means an advocate, somebody who's... who's uh, going between two parties to try to bring, you know, solve a disagreement. Uh, now, as I think we mentioned this before, but I mean, in, in just about every disagreement you can think of between humans, obviously, there's reason for both parties to, have, to make some concessions and have a compromise because there is some fault generally on both parties. It doesn't matter what, what area you're talking about. All right, but in this particular um, uh, disagreement, this is between God and man, and man is the one who is totally at fault. All right, so God is the one that needs to be satisfied, and man needs to be made right and brought back into a good standing with God. That that's a, a doctrine that's referred to in the Bible as reconciliation. All right, but. Hebrews is looking at it here from the standpoint that Christ, as a mediator, he's the one that brought about that reconciliation. Uh, that's looked at in a number of different ways in the New Testament. The book of Philemon, we, we studied that book, uh, I don't know, sometime back. And uh, Philemon puts good bit of emphasis on that, but from a different standpoint. But uh, the fact that Christ, in what he did, satisfied God, 
completely. That's a term in the Bible called propitiation. And uh, all, these, all these fit together and, you know, the, the, the culmination of all these things together, the collection of all these doctrines and things together present the view of what Christ did. There's no one thing that gives it the total view, all right? Uh, but the, those are looking at it from, from, really from God's perspective in that God was satisfied with what Christ did so that now he has a basis. His, his holiness is satisfied concerning how man wronged God, and now God, he is appeased, you could say, and he has a basis to forgive man and to receive man. And Christ is the one who, from both parties, see, we look at Christ and what he did for us, and God looks at Christ and what he did for him. I mean, it's, he, he's the focus of all that. He, he, he mediated, he he goes both ways, if you want to say. He appeases God, and he is the one that brings the, the ability for man to be forgiven and so on. All right, So he's our Savior, our Deliverer. Uh, and it, it's amazing if you just study uh, the doctrines and words used in the Bible pertaining to salvation. They're numerous, numerous, and just all the different pictures and angles uh, that that gives. Um, but he's the mediator. All right, so, and, and then... It, says there in verse 6, by how much also, and the idea is it's just a phrase that's just meaning as great as. It's just all the wording in verse 6, again, is just pointing toward and, and just, uh, if you want to say, building up the idea that Christ is so far superior to the Old Testament priests, all right, and what they could do, which really was not much in reality, all right? And so um, that brings us to really the rest, calls this a better covenant with better promises. And the idea of the word better there, it's, it's the idea of it's a, it's a superior rank is the idea uh, of that. And it's established upon better promises, as we mentioned that word already, but the, the idea of the word established here, it's a legislative term. So in other words, it was made a law. Uh, like when, you know, Congress, all right, or state legislatures or whatever, they, they are responsible in our country to make laws, all right? Um, and, and Christ, what, this covenant, all right, that he is operating by has put it, established, made into law this whole principle here, all right? And so um, in, let's see, in verses now, I think we go on to this in the... In verses 7 through 13, uh, here in chapter 8 now, this covenant is uh, talked about. There's not, it's interesting, there's really only two verses that kind of bring out the principles. The rest of the verses are quoting from the Old Testament, which uh, um, if somebody wants to go to Jeremiah 31, it might be better just one person read that. But Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, if somebody can go to that. Are you getting that, Andy? All right. Um, in just a moment, we'll read that. Um, there's some other verses that we'll go to. If, uh, if somebody can go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. All right, Pastor, if you'll get that. That's just 
one example of a, other verses that could be said as well. Again, we'll get to that here shortly. Um, then also, if somebody could go to um, 1 Timothy 1, 8. All right, and again, just have that on standby. All these are just to be on standby for right now. And then we also need Galatians 3, 24. Galatians 3, 24. All right, Brother Andy back there. And then... Actually, I do have one other passage, Romans 3, verses 19 through 23. Romans 3, 19 through 23. All right? Debbie, if you want to get that. Again, these just have them on standby. We'll get to these uh, here momentarily. All right, so let's just, let's just kind of look through these verses and see this. Now, verse 7, all right, he's, he's mentioned these things about this, uh, this better covenant now. And then verse 7 of chapter 8, he says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, and then now he quotes uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to ask... Andy, if you would, to read those verses. And what I want you to do, as he's reading that, just kind of follow along here in Hebrews 8, and you'll see that he's, he's just quoting from Jeremiah here. All right, so 31 through 34 there. Behold, the day is come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. All right. As you can see, not an exact quote. There's parts of it that aren't quoted in Hebrews. But for the most part, he's referring to that passage. There's other passages in the Old Testament that, that mention parts, anyway, of this, this covenant as well. But uh, the primary passage quoted there is Jeremiah 31. But you can see that he's... He says in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, all right, then should no place have been sought for the second. And the idea is, talking about this new treaty statement, this new covenant here, um, the, there's a need for it because the old covenant was faulty. In fact, that's kind of the word wording that's used here. And in the... Uh, Jeremiah passage that Andy read, that particular phrase isn't here uh, in Hebrews 8, but the reason it was faulty is because the people did not keep their side of the covenant. It's not that it was not a good covenant, so to speak, or whatever, but they are the ones that broke the covenant, and that's Jeremiah refers to it exactly like that. All right, in Hebrews um, let me find the phrase here, in verse 9, I think it is, uh, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. 
All right? Um, but the idea is that covenant was faulty. The word faulty here is the idea it had blame. Okay? So, in other words, there was blame in that. There was room to blame the people because they didn't keep the covenant. All right? There's two different types of covenants, I guess you could say, universally speaking, but in the Bible, when it comes to biblical covenants, which I'm hoping we're going to have time here uh, after we look at these verses to talk specifically for a few minutes about biblical covenants. But um, in the Bible, there's two basic types of covenants. One is called a conditional covenant, which means a, a covenant, an agreement is made between two parties, and there are conditions. In other words, certain things have to be kept for the, for the covenant to be in effect. That's a conditional covenant. And then there's also unconditional covenants. Most of the covenants from God to man in the Bible are unconditional. But the one referred to here in Hebrews 8 as the Old Covenant is what we would call the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant, the, the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai when he gave the law. And uh, it's referred to in Exodus 19, I don't have the exact verse, I think about verse 4 or something like that. Exodus 19 as a covenant, God refers to it as making a covenant with the people. And you'll you remember that he mentioned in di different ways, you will do this and I will do this. All right. In other words, they had a responsibility and God would do his responsibility. There's never a question that God would keep his side of it, if you want to say. All right? the, the iffy part is always if man will keep his part. All right? But that, that covenant was a conditional covenant. And you could summarize the point of that covenant okay, with, I think you have De Deuteronomy 8.1, with the statement there. All right? And again, this, this statement occurs a couple times, but this is a good summary of it. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe shall ye, shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. Okay. In other places, the well, in, in that passage it even says it there, but the idea you could summarize it saying, All right, God says, You do this and you're gonna have life. You're going to live, you're going to be blessed in the land, all this kind of stuff. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, two chapters are devoted to the fact that God says, okay, here's the blessing. If you do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, but if you don't do that, you can expect this kind of curse, this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, all right? I mean, it's just, that's the idea. All right, they were responsible to obey God in order to receive the blessings of this. Now, there's also another caveat, if you want to say, to this, and basically this idea of the, of the Mosaic law given to Israel, God saying, if you'll keep this, you're going to have life, you're going to live, all right? Now, there's another side of that that the New Testament brings out, brings to light, okay? And actually, I'll get down to that in a moment. But uh, the purpose, what, what really from the New Testament's perspective, a purpose in the law, all right, uh, was not really ever a means of salvation, okay? It, in fact, it was basically to show man that he needed 
help. He needed something else. We'll get back to we'll get to that in a minute. But this first or the old covenant was faulty. The fault lie in the people. Again, verse eight says finding fault with them. In verse nine, he he said. Um, that they continued not in the covenant and I regarded them not. So they broke it off is what God said. Um, and then God even gave them various chances, you know. I mean, he'd, he'd restore them and, and they just kept going through all that, all that disobedient and then uh, having to repent and be blessed again process, all that over and over again. Again, just really demonstrating the fact that they weren't keeping his covenant and they really couldn't. Um, but he says they continued not. The covenant, again, is the Mosaic law. It wasn't upheld by the people. They could not keep it. No one can, really, but Christ. And he's the one that did keep it. Uh, and, and, again, we'll get to that in a moment here. So then B, I'm getting behind on here. There it is. The second, or this new covenant, was faultless. There's no blame in it, all right? The second covenant is one of forgiveness and cleansing. Uh, through Christ's high priestly work in heaven, this new covenant is effective. And just several things to consider about that. The old, all right, with the, when the law was carried out, uh, with the priests, you know, the, the sacrifices, the, the different five or so different sacrifices that the book of Leviticus uh, lays out, and then the Day of Atonement, and which is really the uh, uh, the point as a as a nation that God says this is where you're going to have uh, a a uh, an atonement for another year. All right. So in other words, again, they still had to repeat it and all this. But the point was, if they would do these things, God says, all right, we'll we'll continue. Uh, to, to go on to the next year, and your sins are kind of, a, a good way to compare it is their sins were covered. God wasn't looking directly at them, all right? He wasn't holding them, so to speak, in his view. He was setting them aside, all right? Um, but there was no real regeneration in the old. There was reformation. There was, there was ritual and outward behavior, but there wasn't any real regeneration. Now, let me, let me just pause for a second and insert here, okay? That doesn't mean that there weren't people saved. They weren't saved by that, by the Old Testament law. They were saved because of God's grace and faith in God and what he, in His Word, what He told them. That's what they were personally saved by, all right? Uh, not the law. The law was as a nation as of Israel, God would continue to keep them in good standing, so to speak, as long as they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. All right? There was cleansing uh, offered in the new covenant, not merely a, a, a covering. The new covenant offers regeneration, not merely reformation. The new, the new covenant in the, the verses that are quoted from Jeremiah, there's an emphasis where God says he's going to write his laws in their heart, not on tables of stone, all right? And the, the point is, there's a change of heart that's involved in the new covenant, all right? Not just, again, it's not just outward religious observance, but there's a change of heart. There's a relationship with God. And it's written in their heart, not merely on tables of stone. Now, let me see. 
kind of hate that I did it that way. So through Christ's high priestly work in heaven, this new covenant is effective, all right? Brings us to verse 13 in chapter 8. And he says, in, in that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now in the, in the, the Old Testament references, okay, the... That covenant, that Mosaic covenant, that Sinai covenant, that's never referred to as the Old Covenant. It's only called that in the New Testament after the New Covenant is, if you want to say, revealed and put into effect. Okay? And the idea is, okay, this New Covenant replaces that Old Covenant because it was ineffective. It, it, it was... It had a purpose, okay, and again, as long as the, uh, the human parties would observe what God told them, they would receive the blessings that God promised in it, but again, there was not, that's not what brought a relationship with God. A relationship was got, with God was through their personal faith in God, and it's based on grace, okay, and um, which, by the way, I'll just, I, I don't, I don't personally like the term, this is the dispensation of grace, because God has always been gracious, okay? Uh, and, and I believe salvation has always been by grace through faith. Now, uh, in other words, there's two ways to look at that. By grace, grace simply means God's help. God has provided. God has done for man what he could not do himself. Okay, so God has provided a way that man could be right with him, and man receives that through faith. All right? Now, the other side of that is, okay, I didn't have this given out as the verses, but if somebody can turn to 1 Peter real quick, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, I think it is. All right, Tim, you got that? I think it's verse 20. Go ahead. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in his last time for you. All right. That's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? And it's talking about his precious blood in that context that was shed and so on. But the idea is it says there that he was slain as a lamb before the foundations of the world. All right. Well, I thought, I mean, you might be thinking, uh, all right. I thought, you know, that 2,000 years ago or so, from our perspective, that Christ shed his blood. That's true, right? But the point being, in God's mind, in God's view of things, all right, he has always, you could, you could think of it this way, all right? God has always looked at Christ, what Christ has done, all right, in his shedding his blood, giving himself sacrificially. He has always looked at that as the basis for forgiveness. All right? He's never looked at lambs being brought to a tabernacle as a basis for forgiveness. Those were just pictures that were picturing what Christ would do from the human historical perspective. But in God's mind, he's always and only always seen Christ as the basis for him forgiving sins. I've illustrated it this way before, and, 
if you think about like God, we say God is, he's omniscient. He knows everything, right? Um, God created time for us. God is not bound by time. There's no past, present, future with God. Now, that's hard for us to understand in reality because we are bound by time. We have never known anything but time, right? Now, there's coming a day when we'll be free from time, all right? When we're in heaven with the Lord in eternity, there's no time. Time's gonna, it's going to be something that's in the past, if you want to call it the past, because <laughs> we're not going to be, we're, we're, there's going to be a change that takes place with us, okay? And we're not going to be bound by the same limitations that we are now. But think of it this way. So when we think of time, when we look at things, we look at things linearly. In other words, we, we see past, present, future, and throughout your life, as you're going through your life, Obviously, the past and the future change, right? In other words, what was the future at one time is now the past to you, all right? I mean, in other words, you're, we're, we're working our way through time, so to speak. God doesn't look at things that way. When God see, if, if you just think of this paper as representing everything in human history that's ever happened, everything from creation till whenever, all right, everything. We would have to look at it as, you know, just going line by line, letter by letter to read it. God just, he sees it, he sees it all. And he's always seen it all and always known it all. I mean, again, that's, that's we can't relate to that. So that's kind of hard for, to grasp and it's hard to illustrate. And I mean, but the point is, so when you think of it in light of what we're talking about with Christ's sacrifice, him being, uh, uh, well, the priest and the sacrifice and him doing what he did in salvation, that's what God has always seen. Even though in human history it took thousands of years to happen, God's always seen that. And that has always been the basis of him being able to forgive man. Right? So, in a way... You know, salvation by grace through faith, has, it, it's always, yes, based on Christ, but whether some of the people in times past understood everything about Christ, I don't really necessarily think so, but they were taking God at what he had told them, what he had revealed to them at that, at that, up to that time. Because God, over time, revealed more and revealed more and revealed more. And revealed more. All right? But the point is, for anybody, whether it was Noah thousands of years ago, from our perspective, Abraham a little after that, or whatever, for, for any of those people to have a relationship with God, it was based on God's grace. Yes. God being gracious to them. He's the one that provided a way that they could be saved. And ultimately, that's Christ. Yes. But it's through faith. They responded to what God told them. In other words, the information they had. Now today, if you think about it, man is a whole lot more accountable to God because we have, we have God's entire revelation for man. Moses, well, Noah, he had just a little in the scope of things. 
And it's possible God told Noah some things that aren't recorded in Scripture, okay? But what I'm saying is the principle is they responded to God based on what he had shown them, what, what they had available, all right? And, and that's faith. Taking God at his word, no matter what that is, that's faith. Accepting what God says, believing what God says about something, all right? So anyway, um, the second or the new covenant was faultless, again, because it did what couldn't be done. So the new covenant replaces the old covenant. Again, the covenant at Sinai and, and the Mosaic, it was never called that in the Old Testament, but now it is because there's another covenant that replaces it is the idea. All right, now, let, let me spend the next um, few moments, and Andy, I need to access something else beside this. So I noticed earlier it didn't work that way. Um, yeah, just Word. What do I need to do? Grab the top and pull or uh, like do a little click and drag. Actually, let's see here. You should be able to come up to the third window. Drag it to where? There? Up the way I see it behind me. <laughs> <laughs> this is weird. Oops, I did something wrong. Uh huh. Wow. So now I can make it big again? Yep. Is that why? This is now weird. It's your monitor. There you go. Okay, so I got to watch that, not this. Okay, anyway, <laughs> this is new. Um, and that's not what I want to do. But I sh There we go. That's still not it. I, oh, man. <laughs> I tell you what. I'll just uh, not worry about it right now. <laughs> too too time consuming. Um, so I can I can if if you want I can print out what I was going to show you on there. I just didn't know if everybody'd want it, and it's like six pages there. But talking about covenants, okay? Because Hebrews here brings up this subject, and this is something that is, I would say, at least from my personal experience and observation something that's not talked about much regarding salvation. I mean, how many people have ever heard salvation presented in the sense, okay, this is God making a covenant with you? I mean, it's not something that's commonly talked about, okay? But in a way, all right, from one angle of a biblical view, that's what salvation is, all right? God is... is I hate to say it this way, but I think you understand what I'm saying. God's making a deal with you. He is, he is offering you a chance to enter into a covenant with him. A covenant, basically, 
is, a, is an agreement between two parties, all right? Um, in the Bible, there are numerous covenants. In fact, as one writer said, and actually, see, I didn't even print that off, that part, because it's on there, but um, God, the covenants that God has has expressed in the Bible form the basis for all of God's dealings with mankind. And how many of you ever heard the term covenant theology? And then there's an opposing term, okay? I'll try to briefly explain these real quick. But there's an opposing term called dispensational theology. How many of you ever heard that, all right? Uh, does... Everybody, and again, see, I don't know what your understanding of these are, so I'm not trying to uh, bore you or whatever, but all right, the idea is both of those are, are different ways of looking at what each side would say, the biblical scheme of things, okay? Uh, God's dealings with man uh, as presented in the Bible. All right, both of those are, again, two different schools of thoughts or two different veins, two different methods, you could say, of looking at how God has dealt with man throughout history. All right, covenant theology, well, and just to, to state it up front, I believe that I'm speaking for Pastor Brinker in the, in the church as I've read the, uh, the documents, but anyway we would be in the dispensational side of things, okay? Um, in other words, uh, basically what dispensationalism or dispensational theology is, is looking at God's dealings with man as a progression throughout history, all right? And there, there's several key, again, there's a lot of details that we could get into, but um, looking at the way God has dealt with man as, okay, there have been different periods, yes, and different ways in those periods at which God has dealt with man. Basically, it's kind of like building blocks. In other words, God has, he's given some, and then later he gave more, and, and you know, to where we have today, we have a far better picture that's been shown to us, uh, and more understanding because we have the entire Bible uh, of God's plan in this world, all right? But the two keys with that, two keys, I didn't mention one of them yet, but the big key is it's the idea of a progressive sense. And then the second main idea that distinguishes dispensational theology from covenant theology is we hold that there's a distinct difference between the nation of Israel and the New Testament church, all right? Covenant theology says that God only has, has only ever had one covenant, as they would call it, people, and that's Israel, the church, all one, all together, one thing. Have you ever, have you ever uh, noticed if you have uh, a King James Bible that has some like headings and things, sometimes they're little statements at the top. They're kind of like summarizing chapters and that. I mean, and they're going to vary based on who published the Bible and things, you know, that you have and things of that sort. But um, they'll have, sometimes you'll be in the Old Testament, there'll be a heading that says something about the church something. I mean, you know, I can't think of a good 
example. The Bible I have doesn't have that right now. So, um, but I've seen it before, okay? But the point being is because really the people that put those statements there, that shows you that they were covenant theologians, all right? In other words, they believe that Israel and the New Testament church are one and the same, all right? And, and there's different, by the way, I mean, there's different branches of all these, okay? I'm just giving you the main ideas, all right? But in a dispensational view of the scriptures, we hold that there's a distinct difference between God's, maybe you would say, Old Testament people, the nation of Israel, although in a way that's not fair to call it that because God will in the future yet, after this particular time period, God will deal directly with the nation of Israel again. So it's not just Old Testament, all right, but the future yet too. Um, but we hold that Israel is a completely different entity than the New Testament church. And God's dealings with, God's promises to, and the blessings to be expected for Israel are different than God's dealings with and promises to and blessings to be expected of New Testament church saints. Two distinct peoples, two distinct entities, two distinct purposes, you could say. Although, ultimately, we all have the same purpose, to bring glory to God, all right, and make Him known in this world, and so on. Um, but those are the two main characteristics, really, that, that divide covenant theology and dispensational theology. The way of viewing God's history with man and two distinct peoples versus one distinct group. All right, both of those, in a way, the idea of covenant theology, that, that name is a little bit misleading because both views of theology are based on covenants, okay? It's just one has that name and the other has that name, all right? And, and all those are, you're not going to find those terms in the Bible, okay? You're not going to find the term dispensational theology in the Bible. You're not going to find the term covenant theology in the Bible. Those are terms that man has given to what they believe is, a, is a, in each case, an accurate summary of Bible doctrine, okay? And that's, that's common for a lot of things that we use, okay, and do. But that's the, that's the two, and I'm being very simplistic, but that's the two main divides in those two streams. And the point is, though, there's, there's a vast difference in the outcome, or, or what I mean by that is the results that you see as a dispensationalist in God's dealings with Israel, particularly, uh, uh, versus if you were a covenant theologian, all right? The outcomes, the future, and that's, what, that's really what the divide is, okay, what's going to happen in the future? Typically, how many, I mean, most of you probably heard the term an amillennialist. Post-millennial, post, it's even hard to say, millennialist and pre-millennialist, all dispensationalists are pre-millennial, pre-millennialists, all are pre-millennialists, all right? Uh, most covenant theologians are all-millennial. Now, what that means is they don't really believe there's going to be a literal thousand-year reign on this earth. They believe it's a spiritual kingdom that's existing right now, actually. I mean, if this is the millennium, we're in trouble, okay? But anyway, um, but I'm, for real, that's, they look at it as this 
age in which we live is the millennium. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a literal kingdom that Christ is going to sit on the throne of David and rule. But that's what, if, you're, if you take the Bible literally, and that's, that's another area of difference that's involved in that is to be a, an amillennialist, to, to be a covenant theologian, many times you have to allegorize what we would take literally. Okay, in other words, you, you put it into some kind of spiritual application versus taking it literal, literally for what it is. Okay, we believe that God will, uh, after Christ's second coming, when he returns to this earth, the Lord Jesus is literally going to set up a kingdom on this earth. I mean, if you, if you take the Bible at face value, I don't see how you can come away with any different view of that. Revelation chapter 21, for instance, Seven times, I believe it is, in the first six verses, refers to the thousand years, a thousand year reign. The thousand, I mean, it's just repeated over and over again. It seems like it's driving home a point, all right? Um, but again, there would be people that would say, well, that's, that's not literal. That's, you know, that's, again, so it, but my contention is, if that's true, how do you know what? Anything in the Bible is, is to be taken literally or whatever. See, we, we believe in what we would call a grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture. In other words, we take Scripture for what it says in its historical context, all right? And it, God, because God communicated with man using human language. So you, we understand it, how... Human language is normally to be understood. Are there figures of speech used? Yes, Jesus used figures of speech often. But the point is, it's obvious what's figures of speech and what is literal, all right? Uh, I mean, a parable, for instance, is a figure of speech in and of itself, okay? Jesus used parables all the time. Uh, there's, a, there's a figure of speech called a hyperbole. You've probably heard that, all right? That means it's an intended exaggeration. You may not realize it, but you probably use those all the time, all right? You might say, this is as dumb as whatever you make up and fill in the blank, or, you know, I mean, people do that all the time, all right? For instance, I believe that when Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven, he's using a hyperbole, all right? I mean, the eye of a needle is extremely small, right? It's hard to get a piece of thread through that. Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through that than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Why? Why would he say that? Well, because he's driving home a point that a rich person, in their view of themselves, has to become nothing in order to be saved. That's true for anybody, whether you're poor or rich, but in that context, Jesus is emphasizing the negative effect that riches can have in this life and tying you to this life rather than thinking of the life to come. And it's a, it's a hyperbole. Anyway, uh, we're out of time, but that's, that's the, the basic idea, divide of those two ways of looking at Scripture, all right? And there's obviously a whole lot more that could be said, and if you're interested in getting those, I can print that off at six pages, whatever, that I had there on that document. But um, it gives examples of, of both and so on. And I was going to read 
this is an interesting book here I got sometimes back, but it's a dictionary of premillennial theology. There's, there's some real good articles in it that, uh, again, make the distinction between the two you know, I, streams of thought on this and so on. But what I tried to give you, that's the basic differences, okay? But let me, let me say this. I have, to, I have to say this to uh, do this, all right? The whole point of the new covenant, all right, is remember in Matthew 26, uh, in Matthew's account and so on, it's repeated in other gospels, but at what's called the Last Supper, right? Jesus instituted the, the Lord's Supper, but he mentions there about this is the covenant of his blood, the new covenant in his blood, all right? The point is when Christ shed his blood, gave his body as a sacrifice, he provided the basis, again, for man to have this new covenant with God, to enter into this new covenant with God, which replaces the old, which was based on man's works, if you want to say, which were never sufficient to earn favor with God. They were, In fact, verses that we didn't get to, I know I had assigned some verses that we didn't even get to, but some of those verses demonstrate the fact is the law was never given really as a means of salvation. It was given to demonstrate that we need salvation. All right, Galatians 3.24, remember we had that verse that says the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to show us our need of Christ. It was our, our teacher, our, our schoolmaster to show us that we need Christ. Again, there's, there's so much more that could be said of that, but that's the essence of the new covenant. It's the, it's the means of personal salvation before God, right? And if you're saved, you may not have thought about it that way, but according to what the Bible teaches, you've entered into a covenant with God in that. And Christ is the basis of that covenant. We'll, we'll uh, pick up there next time. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the wonderful salvation that we have in him. Lord, there's so much involved in it that really, I, we, I, don't, I don't think any of us could fully ever understand it. But Lord, we thank you for it. And uh, we know that it's such a salvation that you've covered all the bases. There's no loopholes that could ever escape uh, your, uh, your understanding of it and so on. And Father, we thank you for that. We just pray that you'd help us, Lord, to love you and appreciate you as we should. In Jesus' name, amen.